This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, I have been teasing this episode for a few weeks now, and we finally made it. You made it, guys. Congratulations. We're going to be talking about the conversation that went down between Ben Shapiro and Robbie Zacharias. Okay, so this was published on Ben Shapiro's uh, YouTube channel and the Daily Wire channel on June 21st of this year. And so if you don't know by now, Every Sunday, he releases a conversation with somebody, and it's usually somebody that we know of, or at least there's a work of theirs, a book or a movie or something like that that we're aware of, and he just has more of a long-form discussion. So for those of you who've been living under a rock, Ben Shapiro is a conservative political commentator. He's an Orthodox Jew. He's uh, the writer of the uh, national best-selling, really international best-selling book, The Right Side of History, and so he's the type of guy that's kind of a lightning rod for conflict, and so Monday through Friday, he does a normal radio show and he uh, has the hour-long show that he puts out on his podcast and then he's got the three-hour show that's syndicated across the United States. Uh, This is a guy who's constantly quote-unquote owning the libs, you know, whenever he's going to college campuses or doing these debates. He's just that type of a guy. He's a very matter-of-fact type of guy. Uh, He's Someone called him, he's kind of like the hall monitor, like of Twitter sometimes, like that's kind of his personality where he's just constantly correcting people and, you know, correcting the record. And so the thing is, is if you only listen to his show uh, throughout the week, you might get a little bit of a different viewpoint of him than what might come out on his Sunday show. Because on his Sunday show, regardless of who's sitting across from him, whether, whether it's somebody that he agrees with politically or disagrees with or has a different worldview or whatever the situation might be, the conversations always end up being very, very interesting. And so in this particular episode, he had Robbie Zacharias. And so I mentioned Robbie Zacharias a lot on this podcast, but for those of you who don't know who he is, he is the founder of RZIM, which is Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, and he is one of the foremost apologists on the planet Earth. And so he's also gone to a lot of college campuses and done debates, and he does the, these open forums. And I just got to tell you that the number of Christians around the world that have, one, been helped, and two, been created by his Q&A sections of his presentations has to to be an astronomical number. This is a guy that uses uh, a lot of logic, a lot of reasoning, a lot of biblical study, a lot of philosophy, teleology, theology. He He's just a very well-read, very smart person, but he's also a tremendously engaging speaker. And when he's answering questions, he's not just answering the question, he's answering the person, right? And so at the beginning of this episode, Ben Shapiro mentions that Ravi Zacharias is one of his most requested guests. Like there have just been tons and tons of people that want to see these two get together and chat. And so I was also very excited whenever I heard that it was announced that Ravi sat down uh, with Ben Shapiro. I was very excited. I wanted to kind of know how this turned out because again, Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. Ravi Zacharias is a Christian and you know, those are going to potentially create some issues in terms of the conversation. But knowing what I know about those two, I kind of had an idea of how the conversation would go. But in terms of this podcast for today, what we're going to do is we're going to take sections and, you know, the thing about it is just trying to narrow it down to the stuff that I wanted to talk to you all about was incredibly, incredibly difficult because I literally could have talked to you guys about the entire one hour long presentation. It was that deep. It was that entertaining. It was that, uh, you know, intellectually stimulating. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to break out certain sections and then talk to you a little bit more about it. Because there was something a little bit different about this one. So he had on a couple of apologists prior to this, apologists, pastors, whatever you want to call them, but he had John MacArthur on a while back, and then most recently he had on William Lane Craig. And so you would think Robbie Zacharias would just be the latest in kind of this string of a type of guy, but I will say that this one went a little bit differently. And then don't get it twisted. I really enjoyed the conversations that he had with John MacArthur and William Lane Craig. This one was just a little bit different. So what I'm going to uh, try to remember to do, sometimes I'm not that great at it, but I'm going to try to remember the clip, like where the clip starts so that if you're watching the YouTube video of this, which obviously I've got in the show notes for you, so you can watch and follow along with that. I want you to know exactly where I'm at. So I'm going to try to give you the timing of the clip and then kind of give you an idea of how far that goes. And then we'll just kind of come in and out and we'll see how it goes. So at the beginning, Ben Shapiro uh, asked him a question. I can't remember what the question was at the very beginning, but then he kind of got to the most pressing question, uh, which really came right off the top, which is what is the question that you're asked the most often, right? And so Robbie Zacharias has been all over the world and he's literally answered questions for thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. But Ben really wanted to kind of get him on 
what exactly was the question that came up the most often? And Robbie's answer was basically the one that we hear all the time, especially if you're in any type of apologetic circles or you do any reading in those areas, is the problem of evil. You know, the, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. You know, how could bad things happen to good people? And so that was Robbie's answer there. But then Ben Shapiro follows up. So let's go ahead and get into the first clip here from their interview. So let's talk about the problem of suffering and pain. Okay. Obviously, there have been a, a bunch of religious thinkers who have yeah. taken this on. It's always puzzling to me when you hear secular humanists and atheists suggest that it's a revelation, that this is a, yeah. a problem for religious thought. Obviously, it's yeah. been a problem for religious thought since the very yeah. beginning. What do you think is the is the best answer to that very difficult question? Well, uh, you know, Job is the one who wrestled with it the most. Job, to me, came up with a very incredible answer. And that's, to me, a softer touch today, but I think a profound touch for those of us who have that knowledge of God. To him, when he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, now I see, have seen you, I abhor myself, and I'm horrified, and he repented. That relationship with God, same as with Habakkuk, you know, they struggled with these issues, but that divine encounter gave them a pair of eyes so that they could see to the problem from a very different perspective. God is, God acts, God changes. That's what Habakkuk came up with, you know, the actuality of God in distinction to atheism, the eventuality of his working in distinction to deism, and the eternality of his perspective in distinction to to pantheism. So the question itself is well answered within the Judeo-Christian worldview. But I think as a culturally relevant apologist, this is the way I deal with it, Ben. And I found it to be quite effective because the the wheels start turning. I was at the University of Nottingham years ago when it was first thrown at me. And a guy stood up and he just said, how can you possibly talk of a good God, of goodness, when there's so much evil in this world, how can you talk about a God that actually exists in this kind of evil and this kind of suffering? That, of course, Richard Dawkins uh, and all of them raised the same. So I looked at him and I said, let me ask you this. You're talking about evil? He said, yes. I said, when you say this evilly, aren't you assuming that such a thing is good? He said, yes. I said, when you say that such a thing is good, aren't you assuming that such a thing is a moral law by which to distinguish between good and evil. He paused for a moment on that one, and then I referenced him to Bertrand Russell's debate with Copleston, in which Copleston looked at Russell and said to him, how do you differentiate between good and bad? And Russell said the same way, I differentiate between blue and green. And uh, Copleston said, but wait a minute, you differentiate between those colors by seeing, don't you? He said, yes. He said, how do you differentiate between good and bad, Mr. Russell? He paused, and he said, on the basis of my feeling, what else? I think that was the weakest point of Russell's debate. So when I looked at him, he said, all right, I will agree to you that there is a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. I said, evil, therefore good. Good, therefore a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. I said, but if you posit a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver, but that's whom you are trying to disprove and not prove. Your whole point is invoking a moral law, which you cannot invoke without a moral lawgiver. So your problem of evil actually disappears with the false assumptions that you're making. Do you know, Ben, he paused and he looked at me and he said, what then am I asking you? So for those of you that listen to a lot of Ravi Zacharias, a lot of that's going to sound familiar. And so um, there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that perhaps don't follow Ravi Zacharias's uh, podcast. I think it's called uh, Just Thinking. And he's also had a lot of things on YouTube and all that. But he does use a lot of the same stories and some of the same examples that he uses in a lot of that. But again, in this one, you get his his big idea that I've talked about a lot and I've shared a lot with people is that if you posit such a thing as evil, you have to posit such a thing as good. There has to be another side to that coin. And I think just about anybody, regardless of their philosophical standing, would grant you that. But then again, you have to differentiate between good and evil somehow, right? Somehow. So I think most people would also agree that there's some kind of a moral law, right? That there has to be a moral law somewhere with which to differentiate between good and evil. Otherwise, there's no reason to describe anything as good or evil in that binary sense. But then we get into the moral lawgiver side. And, and before I get into that, one thing that's interesting, and then I'll get back into the moral lawgiver side, is this is the first time we see him make Old Testament references, right? 
mentioning Habakkuk, and uh, you're, you're going to notice this, and I'm not going to consider, uh, well, I'm really not going to put every clip in here for you, but he mentions the Old Testament a lot. And so think about the reason why he might be doing that with a guy like Ben Shapiro that, you know, takes the Old Testament very, very seriously. But let's go ahead and get back into Ravi's answer where he's going to kind of continue this line of thinking in terms of the moral law giver. I was with William Lane Craig, whom you uh, had on your program. William Lane Craig and I were on a program with a physicist by the name of Bernard Lycan and a pantheist by the name of Jitendra Mohanty, sponsored by Emory, Emory University years ago. And this was thrown back at me. Why do you need to posit a moral law giver? All right, we'll grant you there is this abstract moral law. Why do you need to posit a moral law giver? And my answer is this, Ben. Every time the problem of evil is raised, it is either raised by a person or about a person, which means the questioner assumes persons have intrinsic worth. And that is an assumption they cannot make in a random evolutionary universe with no primary mind and personal being as our creator. So if we have the random collocation of atoms, how do we attribute essential worth to ourselves? So the person component is vital to the question. And so the moral law needs a moral law giver if persons are to have essential worth. So to me, the problem of evil when it is raised is a self-stultifying problem because it has to assume a framework that it cannot arrogate to itself in a random universe without personal value. So there you go. And I got to be honest with you from the beginning. I remember the first time I heard him say about, you know, if you say there's such a good as evil, you need to say there's such a thing as good. Then you need a moral law with which to differentiate. And then that means you have to have a moral law giver. And for me, I was like, well, I can see the first three, but that doesn't necessarily assume that you need to have the moral law giver, right? Until I heard him explain it this way for the first time. And it's like, yeah, you're either positing this question as a human or you're saying this about another human. And so intrinsic inside of all of that, there's some sort of worth, right? There, there's some sort of a worth there for you as a human. And so philosophically, that's a really important question for a lot of us to kind of reckon with and kind of get an idea of what that looks like for us. And to be honest with you guys, if you don't take anything else away from this podcast, that's an easy one to remember. Evil, good, moral law, moral law giver. And then walk them right back. Moral law giver, moral law, good, evil, right? You've got to be able to, to show that to people because I got to say, whenever I talk to any of my friends that are atheists or agnostics or anything like that, and if you say it in that way, there's not a whole lot they can do to wiggle out of that, regardless of how smart they are or well-read they are. They have to reckon with that. They really do have to reckon with that. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, this is the beginning of an hour-long podcast. We're already kind of getting into some deep waters and some very philosophical topics and things that are really things that you can spend a lot of time, you know, thinking through and trying to figure out exactly what it looks like. But Ben Shapiro actually continues the discussion about the moral law and the moral law giver. So let's go back into here. Oh, and sorry, I just literally forgot. I haven't been showing you where these clips have been. So I'll start right now. So go ahead and go to the 925 mark if you're following along with the video, and we'll get back into the interview here. So how do we get from the idea of the, the moral lawgiver and a God who is present in the universe to what exactly that moral law is? So there's sort of the God of the philosophers. This has obviously puzzled a lot of, right. of religious philosophers. Right. There's the God of the philosophers, the sort of unmoved mover, the, the, the being that, that generates a unity to the universe and an order to the universe. How does that translate over into the sort of moral law that we practice or that we should practice, can you just do all of this on the basis of, of reason alone, just looking at the universe through natural law, or do you need something like revelation? I think that's a great question. In your book, I think you've brilliantly given that dialectic of your you know, reason and purpose and meaning. Uh, they are inextricably bound, and you really cannot have one without the other. Uh, the way we get to it is uh, something like this. I do two frameworks on this, Ben, as an apologist uh, dealing with the Judeo-Christian worldview. We all need to know the truth. Ultimately, we are in search for the truth, you know, where we need to accept the fact. But what, how do we get to the truth? And philosophers of old have told us there's the correspondence theory of truth and the coherence theory of truth. Correspondence applies to particular statements. Coherence applies to a 
cumulative presentation of those statements. So when you go to a court of law, the correspondence and coherence theory are always brought to bear in determining guilt or innocence. But how do we get to it? I say there are three ways of logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Is my argument logically consistent? Is there any empirical basis for me to believe what I'm believing? And is there any experiential relevance to all of this? But then this has to be applied to the four questions of life, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where do I come from? What does my life really mean? How do I distinguish between good and evil? What happens to a human being when he or she dies? That closing chapter in your conversation with your daughter is brilliant, you know. The question of eternality even comes into the mind of a little one. There's that intuitive drive towards that. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Pursuit, truth. Correspondence, coherence. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, experiential relevance. When you form a worldview, these are the four questions you have to answer by applying the notions of truth. So with the moment you say the word revelation, you know, ah, this is one of those dinosaurs who actually believes a book dropped out of heaven and so on and so forth. It's not as simplistic as that. You take the revelation of God that has come across a millennium and a half of revelation. You apply these tests and you see that the existence of God presents a framework for the existentially undeniable questions that we struggle with. Those very questions are legitimized because of the value that we lay claim. So yes, there's reason and revelation, but not some kind of pie in the sky by and by, but propositional truth that is put to the test by a scrutinizing mind. So here again, we get some of the big, consistent themes that we get a lot of the times in Ravi Zacharias' answers and in a lot of his presentations as well. And so, guys, I just got to put it out there to you. I'm not that philosophically deep when it comes to these things, especially. but you know, he, he lays it out there in a way where it's palatable. That's why he's one of the best apologists and presenters that we, we have in modern Christendom. But again, he brings up two huge things here that have a lot involved in him. But the first thing is logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance right when you look at something is it consistent does it follow a logic does it follow a linear logic also is it adequate empirically can you look at it multiple different ways empirically and is it relevant is it relevant to your experience and other people's experience can it be placed in a multitude of contexts and still work out so when you think about the gospel, obviously the gospel works whether you have a Western worldview or an Eastern worldview or anything in between, right? But then the big thing, and this is, again, going back to if you have friends who are atheists or agnostics or you'd like to engage in those conversations with people that align with that type of a worldview, is the four questions of life. And, and he says this stuff literally all the time, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Those four things. Those are the four things that you kind of have to, you have to really, really think through origin, where do I come from? Meaning, what does my life really mean? Morality, how do I distinguish between good and evil? Destiny, where does a human go when they die? If you posit a worldview, it has to answer those four questions, or it's not a coherent worldview, right? I mean, that's kind of the thing that a lot of people that find themselves when you have these great, great minds like a C.S. Lewis or or someone like that, that finds their way intellectually to Christianity is because Christianity has an answer for origin, meaning morality and destiny. Like we know where we come from, but we, we know what the true meaning of life is. We, we know where we get good and evil. And that's not just something that we, we happened upon, right? And, And we know where our destinies are depending upon the choices that we make. You know what I mean? And so those are things for you guys. Again, these last two sections, if you don't get anything else, re-listen to those two sections, either here on this podcast or there on theirs, you know, just make sure that you can listen to that as often as possible, because that's one of the reasons why I continue to listen to Ravi Zacharias's podcast on a weekly basis and watch his uh, presentations. Even though he says a lot of the same things, it's because this stuff is gold. This stuff is absolute gold. I mean, how often do you just sit there in church and roll your eyes because they've said the same scripture that you've already read before? No, you get something different out of it every time. That's why people don't just read the Bible once and move on. Like if you really want to have a deep understanding, you continue reading it. You study it. You know, that's that type of thing. But as we get into the next section here, um, there's another story that Ravi talks about a lot. And it's a story that he uses in a multitude of contexts. But this leads him to the first mention of our Savior. So let's go ahead and get back into the clips here. 
and the Judeo Biblia, the Judeo Christian worldview, Ben, I believe. I was raised in a counterculture to this. I wasn't raised in either of those uh, worldviews. I was a naturalist. I was a skeptic. And I ended up on a bed of suicide when I was 17 years old, desperately looking for the very thing your book talks about, you know, that individual value and that individual purpose and a belongingness to a community and so on. And it was then when the Bible, I couldn't even hold the Bible, by the way, because I was, my body was dehydrated. I had uh, taken some poison that uh, emptied me of all the water, moisture in my body. And then to see how God, through the flow of history, and of course, even though we have our differences, we have a common background in communion with God. Both of us have that goal. And in the person of Jesus Christ, I found that answer. And so my relationship to the person of God, as Job pointed out, as Habakkuk pointed out, that relationship is key because some answers to life transcend the propositional nature of things. They don't violate it, but they transcend it. So I think you get to the answer of who God is, not just by some leap of faith, uh, which we sometimes attribute to people. Mine was a very reasoned study of scriptures, and the reasoning that we applied was a rational type, but the importance was there was a moral reasoning behind the whole process. So you don't just get to it by either reason or revelation. It's a confluence of both in proper balance. Obviously, reason and revelation is a big deal, and he's making, he's doing a really good job here, especially if you follow both of these men, you can see what Ravi's doing, okay? So he's bringing in personal stories, which, you know, kind of normalizes him as a person. He's not an ideology now, he's a person. But when you talk about reason and revelation, that goes directly back to Ben Shapiro's book, The Right Side of History. If you haven't read that yet, we did a podcast episode on it several months ago, but you should definitely pick that up and read it. It's uh, it's a short book, but it's kind of a long read because it's fairly deep. But that's the thing here is he's bringing these things up, but then he also brings up his discipleship with Jesus. And so this is the first time in this message that, or in this interview rather, that he's talking about Jesus. And again, he's sitting across from a very, very famous, probably the most famous Orthodox Jew on the planet Earth. This guy has gone on record by saying that Jesus Christ was basically a uh, a heretic that was killed for his trouble, right? He, he tried to start a rebellion, um, you know, against Rome and all those types of things. And basically Rome killed him. Uh, obviously, that's an oversimplification and a misunderstanding of history. But at the same time, that is what this guy believes. But you have someone across from him in Ravi Zacharias that is constantly talking to people about the gospel and the reality of Jesus and all the things therein. And so that's a that's a great place right there. And then we're going to skip a little bit ahead here in the discussion. But now Ben Shapiro is going to get more into a discussion about the evolution of moral law, right? So you, you may have heard it in a bunch of different ways, but let's go ahead and get into how Ben Shapiro would describe it here. So when we talk about the Judeo-Christian moral law, one of the questions that I get from folks like Sam Harris or like Michael Shermer is, all right, let's assume that there is this, this eternal moral law that corresponds with some form of eternal truth and, and a lawgiver. So why has that law evolved over time? So to take, for example, the, the example that they like best is slavery. So originally the Bible contemplates that slavery is part of life. And then over time, we've decided that not only is slavery a part, not a part of life, slavery is a grave evil that ought to be fought wherever it exists. How do, how do we justify evolution in the Judeo-Christian framework of morality? Well, it's, of course, the metaphysical extrapolation of the naturalistic interpretation of the very origin of life. So when you talk about the evolution of humanity itself, they want to talk about uh, morality itself also sort of evolving. I think it becomes a circular argument. The argument that somehow we were valueless to start with and just happened to be on this radar screen of time and that we developed all these things over a period of time, I think is a false view of the beginnings. In fact, though, you know very well as a, as a scholar within the Jewish framework, the very concept of slavery, very different, very different idea of what we interpret as, uh, as what slavery is all about. And uh, when you talk about Paul talking about how to treat uh, the, quote, slave in the household and that he was willing to be there present and even redeem this person in a socioeconomic framework that you have these kinds of terms used and, and systems used, we are bound to make blunders. So then I would turn the question on its head and say, all right, if you believe that we have evolved more morally 
why is it in the 20th century that we killed more people in warfare than all of the previous 19 centuries put together? So it is not an honest representation of how we have actually come into believing in moral framework. In fact, there are some things now that we have reversed over 5,000 years of civilized history. For thousands of years, some people never believed some of the things that we have begun to believe. So I would say that, to me, the most important phrase, Ben, in the Ten Commandments, I don't believe there's a better moral framework that starts with the very being of God and all the way to my to the sacredness of my life, my neighbor's life, my neighbor's marriage, my neighbor's property. I mean, this goes back, you know, to 3,500 years ago. The most important phrase to me, Ben, and that is, I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That redemption is prior to righteousness. And then righteousness leads on to worship. So when you get to Exodus 20 and you're dealing with that beautiful moral law, and then you move five chapters later and you move into the tabernacle and the framework of reference, I think it is the change of heart that is the only answer to the moral framework. And here's the scary thing. God did not send us his message to make bad people good. Morality alone will never save us. Sometimes in the name of morality, people have done some horrible things. It is the fact that the heart is in need of redemption, in need of forgiveness, and it is redemption that must precede righteousness. So to talk about morality having been involved, when you go back 3,500 years ago and the moral law is given to us, it was because people had already violated that relationship with God. So I say, as far from morality evolving, right from the beginning we have known what it was all about. So what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis happens in this world every day. What happened in the temptation saga, Ben, I think is very critical. And your book points out what has happened as a result of this flaw, okay? In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. That's the word of God. But the enemy of our souls comes and says, ah, you will be as God, knowing good and evil. That has been the battle for millennia. What is the battle? To allow God to be God or to play God. And in the defining good of evil, and what happened when they are confronted? I didn't. I didn't, the serpent. This idea of violating the authority of God and becoming autonomous and then blaming everything else this has not evolved. This goes back over three millennia long, and we have challenged it every day in this victim culture. What are we doing? It's not my fault. It's this person's fault. We don't believe in absolutes. We have autonomy. So on the one hand, we claim to be autonomous, but when we go wrong, we blame somebody else. It's someone else's normal. So I, I do not accept this idea that it is some, somehow evolved you go back millennia ago and you see the value of human life and the value of a moral law millennia back. Now, I thought that was a really interesting way to put it uh, because that's obviously a big question and guys like Sam Harris or the the four horsemen of new atheism, they constantly bring that up. Like, okay, how do we get to this point where we're not just slaughtering and murdering each other? It's like, oh, because we've evolved to do that, right? Um, you know, that was bad things that we used to do when we were just monkeys that were, you know, dragging our knuckles on the ground. But now that we're, you know, upright monkeys with way less hair, we've just discovered, we've evolved as a people to understand that these things are bad. It's not a moral law. It certainly didn't come from a moral law giver. But I love how Ravi put it where he's basically like, look, the battle is between allowing God to be God and trying to be God ourselves. And that has been the battle since the very beginning. And so the idea that we've evolved to the morality that we get to now is bunk. And you can see it in modern day society where the things that we we allow in our society, the, the things that we say are, are good things and, and they're just okay and things that we should just kind of be okay with. So you think about homosexuality, transgenderism, you know, all this plurality of thinking in all these different areas. No, nah, it doesn't really work that way. That's not really how this was supposed to, to be again, because we have a moral law that was given to us by a moral 
moral lawgiver, right? So that's kind of how we get into it. But the, this first part of the presentation, kind of the first third, was really kind of deeper philosophical issues. And then we start getting into more cultural-based type issues. So let's go into the next clip here. This is going to be at the 21 minute and 20 second mark. And guys, I'm pretty sure I've been forgetting to give you those. I told you from the beginning that I was probably going to forget. So I apologize. I'm a bad person. But this one is at the 2120 mark. So in your worldview, do you make a distinction between that which is sinful and that which you consider immoral? So this is a sort of deep philosophical issue in the religious community. Is there a difference between doing something that the Bible considers sinful and doing something that is moral on some sort of naturalistic level? The difference between hurting somebody else and, for example, engaging in a consensual behavior. This is obviously taking a modern example. Engaging in a consensual behavior that doesn't hurt a third party, per se, but maybe a sin against the natural law or a sin against the Bible? I think sin is a vertical term. It is not merely a horizontal term. When David sinned with what happened with Bathsheba and he falls on his face before God in Psalm 51, what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Nathan confronted him. Sin is a vertical thing. Morality can very easily become a horizontal term. And I think this is where we are getting uh, grounded, literally and figuratively, Ben. When we only talk about a moral framework, if you go to uh, India today, moral reasoning is very different to that of, say, the moral reasoning of the West. And sin, to me, is a violation not of something abstract. It's a violation of a personal command. There is no sin in God. That means there's no contradiction in God. God is a self-existent being. It is impossible for him not to exist. He exists eternally. So if I am to be in keeping with that will of my heavenly Father, when the prodigal son returns, what does he say? I've sinned against heaven and against you. In that order, we take the vertical and make it horizontal. So I like how he puts that there, that basically sin is a vertical thing, not just a horizontal thing, because that's been a question a lot of times. Again, if you get into any of these conversations into deeper philosophical or theological issues with people and kind of the the easiest example is homosexuality. So it's like, you know, hey, you bigoted Christian, what is it a problem to you? It's not hurting you if someone decides they want to be in a homosexual relationship and they want to sodomize their boyfriend. What, What does that matter to you? Right. And they probably wouldn't word it that way, but it's kind of one of those things that that's kind of hard to reckon with. Well, you know, they aren't doing that to me. You know, they're not raping me. They're not inconveniencing me. It's just something that I have to think about from time to time. Is it really that big a deal? Well, yes, it is a big deal because you're sinning against heaven and against God. You're you're sinning against your creator, right? And again, I'd say this all the time. We have varsity sins and junior varsity sins, right? Depending upon the age with which you are at that exact moment or, you know, the family you grew up in, there were certain sins that were bigger than others. I mean, how many of you out there know people? Maybe you are one of those people where you're a divorced Christian, right? And then you've gotten remarried. Well, Jesus had a pretty clear standard on that. You're an adulterer and the person you married is now an adulterer just for having married you, right? We all have our sins that we kind of pay attention to. And then the ones that we don't, we usually pay attention to the ones that we don't struggle with. We, we try to not, we don't really pay attention to the ones that we have, have a big struggle with because it's kind of getting right in our face. Right. But I do like how he talked about how sin is a vertical issue. It's not just an innocent thing. It's not just people doing their thing. They're not just going their own way. They're not just libertarian and living everything out. It's just, it's a very different type of an idea. But then in the example here, and we'll go to clip around 23 minutes and 15 seconds in, they kind of continue with an example of, Uh, that we can all relate to. And you know, our moral struggle these days, Ben, to me, which is very deep, by the way, and if I may just digress for just a moment, uh, I remember the first time I came to the West Coast. It was in the 70s. Okay, I was an undergraduate in Toronto at that time. And I have to say to you, yesterday as I walked through Los Angeles, this state is a microcosm of the collision course in which we are headed culturally. Probably one of the most beautiful states anywhere in the world. It's got the mountains, it's got the oceans, it's got the deserts, finest minds in this country, from cyber capacity to artistic splendor, all of this. And yet what did I see yesterday as I walked? If you had taken me back to Calcutta 40, 50 years ago, 
I would have been walking past many homeless and thinking to myself, how are we going to solve this problem? So what we have done in debunking the notion of sin and talking merely morality, we have ended up with a dead-end word that people really cannot relate to. In fact, if you want to end a discussion with a press reporter, just use the word sin. <laughs> and you know, that's it. So I frankly, I like what you've done in your book. To me, when I'm talking to a person and they say to me, what do you think is wrong then? I say it's a violation of purpose. We have violated the purpose for which we have created. They can connect much more with that existential rub. And then, of course, they look at you and say, what do you mean by violation of purpose? I say, if you take a car and run amok in a crowd of people and kill them, can you blame General Motors for it? Some will say, that's not why I fashioned this car. It was for transportation. So we've run amok in what we have done with our values. And then we blame the creator for it. So I think morality is good for civil coexistence, what Calvin talked about, the fourth use of the law type thing. But morality alone will not save this society unless we develop an accountability to our creator, not merely for moral reasoning, but for the recognition that life at its core is sacred. The desacralization of life is at the core of what has happened. We do not know what it means to be human. And in losing that definition, as Chesterton would say, we were our feet firmly planted in midair. So I really like the dichotomy that he paints there, where we don't talk about sin anymore, right? We, we just talk about morality. But again, how do we know morality is what it is? We spent a large chunk of the discussion earlier in this podcast, and they did in their interview, talking about a moral law and a moral, -like, moral lawgiver, right? But, but again, we're not allowed to talk about sin, and he's right. When you bring up sin in a conversation with someone that doesn't believe in God, I mean, just you're pretty much 90% of the time going to get an eye roll, a pretty serious eye roll, right? Because they just don't really care to see things in that way. And imagine talking to a more militant atheist when you're talking about morality. They're okay with talking about that because they can kind of put strictures around what exactly they want to discuss in that area. But gosh, you just can't even mention sin. Sin's not a real thing. God's not a real thing. We're technically not a real thing. If you think more kind of in the Eastern religious sense, like we're, we're just kind of neurons firing left and right. There, there's not actually anything happening here. We're just a random, I think he called a collocation of atoms that are bouncing off of one another. You know what uh, Jeff Durbin calls it, you know, stardust, stardust rather bouncing off of other stardust, right? That's, that's kind of the way that we think about it. But at the same time, it is a violation of purpose. When we're only talking about things in a sense of morality without talking about sin, we don't understand our purpose. And so, again, that kind of got more to some cultural scenarios. And even if you're not from California or visited California, it's obviously well publicized the things that are going on in that state. It's absolutely insane what's happening over there. Right. I mean, it's you, you've heard people say, you know, really derogatory things about the types of people that live there. But at the same time, it's like it's impossible to live in California right now and be conservative. Uh, there are no Republicans that are in state office whatsoever. You, you can't have a pro-life position and really live in that state. I mean, it'd be, I think it'd be hard to operate a business out of there. And it, it's crazy that Ben Shapiro still lives out there. He basically lives out there because he's close to everything being in L.A. But I, I wouldn't put it past him. I think within the next 10 years, Ben Shapiro is going to be in Texas, right? Because of all the different benefits of being in a state like Texas and still being kind of a centralized hub and not being out there where, where all that nonsense is going on. So I thought that was a very interesting way of putting it. Now, as we move along here, we're going to get to a clip that's uh, around the 26 minute mark. Well, actually uh, about 2547 in, but Ben Shapiro asked a question about the role of government. So again, you know, he made it about halfway into this podcast without getting into anything that was truly political. But again, this is Ben Shapiro's world. He's one of the, the, he has one of the biggest microphones in all of political talk, especially conservative political talk at the moment, but he does talk about the role of government, but I want you to hear how he words his question here. So when we look at the role of government in all this, there's a really interesting debate that's broken out in the conservative movement right now between one wing that's more libertarian, and I will admit I'm in this wing, the, the wing that still defends class, classical liberalism, and a sort of fusionism, the idea that rights are important and rights are important because we have duties, that there's a, the, the, and that duties are to be imposed socially, but not necessarily by government. And then there is a group of folks on the right who argue in convincing fashion that liberalism may in fact be part of the problem, that if you have a liberal free society, 
this grants the ability for people who oppose traditional morality to tear down the structure, to tear away a community, that the individualism that is integrally connected to liberalism, that that individualism tears away at a lot of the same communal values. And so you, what you end up with is an atomistic society in which there is no community, no common moral fabric. You end up with the rights without any of the duties, and that eventually ends in exactly what you're talking about, the sort of breakdown of society. So where do you think the proper role of government is in either enforcing morality or not enforcing morality? What has to be done socially and what can the government be encouraging or should it be encouraging? And that's the tough question of our time. And that's the tough question of our time. And I liked uh, Ravi's answer here, but I, I wanted to kind of, you know, shorten this up a little bit. He gives a very interesting answer saying, you know, it's not about right and left, but it's instead about up and down. Again, he talks about the vertical nature of sin, that type of concept, that idea. And he talked about how people on Capitol Hill disagree vehemently, basically on one word, and that's the word God. Right. And that really informs your worldview if you believe in God or don't believe in God. But at the end of his answer here, he gives an incredible statement that we should reckon with. And that's at the 30 minute and five second mark. So I'm going to go ahead and play that here. We took secularization, evicted God. Then we faced pluralism and pluralization, and we took it to mean relativism. And then we went to privatization where we were told that faith should be made private. So the key to me is redefining whether secularism is really at the core of what our government should be, or will we honor the fact of our founding fathers that this was made for a moral people. This was made for those who had the freedom to believe. You privatize faith, you will ultimately privatize morality, and you will then publicize the destruction of one another. The whole key to me is, are we a secularly conscious people, or is there a transcendent framework of value for me and you with all of our differences that we can cordially sit back and even agree to disagree and give each other a hug and say, hey man, here we go. Now, this is a huge point that he's making. Again, he kind of talked about we had secularization. That's kind of where we're at. You know, we've evicted God from the public square and from kind of public discourse. And then we had pluralism, but it, we took it to mean relativism, which obviously I've talked about before about moral relativism and how that just isn't a, a worldview that has anything that's undergirding it. And then we moved to privatization. Like, hey, you know, if you want to believe that stuff, believe it on your own. Don't really bring it out here. You know, we don't need to see all that nonsense. You know, keep it to yourself. But he, he begs a huge question. And I think it's a bigger question for where we're going to be as a country, as the United States, as opposed to where we're at now. But is secularism at the core of how we want to operate? Do we really want secularism at the core? And I kind of go back and I just I thought of this um, during the 2016 run up to the election we're we're in the Republican primary portion of the race. And uh, Senator Rubio from Florida, Marco Rubio, he was asked by an atheist at one of his kind of town hall discussions. He says, hey, listen, I'm an atheist. And so if you become president, how is that good for me? That, that's essentially his question. And Rubio, you know, without even skipping a beat goes, you better hope that I operate like a Christian, because if I do, it's good for everybody. Again, I'm, I'm just summarizing his quote there, but he's like, the thing about it is, is even if you're an atheist, even if you don't believe in this stuff, you like living in the world where this is our reality. You like living in a world where we care about people, where we're not just taking the old monkeys outside and shooting them because they're too inconvenient, where we're taking the retarded monkeys down the road and drowning them in the river because they serve no utility, right? You're really glad we live in that world. You're really glad we live in a world that has some sort of morality to it and that we're not just animals. We're not just highly evolved animals that wear pants and talk to one another, right? You, you really do enjoy that. So regardless of if you don't believe it or not, it doesn't change the reality of where you're living, bro. And that's a great way of putting it. We've secularized everything we've gotten got out. Where is that going to leave us as a country as we move forward? Where is that going to go? Because we've seen what happened in the 20th century. Anybody that's listened to Jordan Peterson, like you can't go five minutes into a Jordan Peterson talk without him talking about, you know, the communist regimes of the 20th century and how the godlessness of the 20th century led to the most amount of death and murder in the history of humanity in one century. And it was from all these atheistic regimes. I, I mean, how, how are you going to disagree with that? I mean, you've really got to to really get in there and understand where you're coming from if that's your worldview, right?
So I really like how he worded that in there. Now Ben Shapiro is going to kind of get into a question that I'm sure many of us have been posed at one time or another when speaking with unbelievers. So let's go and get into that. This is the clip starting at 32 minutes and eight seconds. I talk with a lot of college students just the way you do, and many of them ask the question, you know, is your suggestion when you talk about religion, there can't be a good atheist or a good secular person. I always say, well, I don't know a single religious person who believes that there can't be a secular person who acts well and acts in concert with with public morality. It's a a silly question, but it does raise the the secondary question, which is, okay, well, if I'm a good secular person, I don't believe in God, but I still abide by a certain level of morality. What makes God necessary to my life? Why should I think about God as opposed to just sort of behaving in the way that we all sort of agree commonly is good? I think it's a great question, but it hangs on the peg of one flaw, and that peg says autonomy is all that really matters, being autonomous, that I'm a law unto myself. First of all, your, your disclaimer is very valuable. I believe there are many good people that I have met who are skeptics, who are non-believers in God. Sometimes they put us Christians to shame, you know, when, they, when I see some of the courtesy and the generosity of some of them well-received. But the fact of the matter is they are using a word that is only self-referencingly defined. I am a good person. How do I decide that? And if I am only going upon my own reason, uh, you know, in some cultures they love their neighbors, in other cultures they eat them, both of them may think that they are good and that they are doing good. Think of what we are doing today while considering ourselves a good culture. It is unthinkable some of the decisions we are making at the highest level of lawmakers, and yet we call ourselves good. It is not a self-defining motive. First of all, if I believe goodness is purely on my definition, I have to give that prerogative to every other human being. Even the naturalistic framework of Immanuel Kant, you know, the universalizing of a principle, uh, would apply right here. But the fact of the matter is when I, I'm a cross-cultural person, okay, even within India, I was raised in the North, born in the South. The color tension, Ben, the tension between the complexions of people while I was growing up, I come from the South, so I'm darker complexion, but I moved to the North. It was tough, and in some parts of India that is still so, and you see the uh, matrimonial column, wanting to marry a wheat complexion, whatever that means. You know, I, I, my brother used to say, is this a whole wheat or what wheat we're talking about out here? <laughs> We've got all these tensions that go on. So cultures have different values in self-referencing behavior. Once upon a time, the sati system in India, thank God it was abolished, you know, where the wife had to burn herself and the pyre of her husband, so on. They thought they'd been good people. So to say I am good is a highly risky statement if you do not believe in absolutes. It is a relativistic term, and if you say all truth is relative, then it is a self-destructing statement. It destroys itself. Is it an absolute, or is that statement relative to? So I say, yes, many good good living people who are skeptics and have done wonderful things in this world, but to give oneself the prerogative of defining good leads to a world of chaos that is given everywhere else. And here's, here's what I say. America talks a lot about rights, but we have not yet defined what is right. My rights stand on the bedrock of an absolute definition of what is right. And it was that's why people like Wilberforce and others were at the forefront of fighting slavery, because it was a wrong, nobody had the right to inflict that on any human being. So that's, that's my answer. My answer is that there are good people, but they're living beyond the foundation on which their lives are standing. America has talked a lot about rights, but we have not yet defined what is right. I mean, that's awesome. That's some pretty awesome stuff. And again, if you're any type of a cultural commentator or someone that really just pays attention to culture, you got to realize that that's true. 
and we, we talk so much about our rights. My right as an American, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, you know, whatever the situation might be. And and those are good things. And you're going to hear me, you know, kind of being one of the voices that's in that camp. But if if we've evicted, again, going going back to the last, last section, if we've evicted God from culture, if we've evicted God from the public square, if we've evicted him from government, how do we know what's right? How do we just assume that we're just going to keep getting it right over and over? Like, like we, we shouldn't be that naive, but we are. And again, I love how we talked about self-defining good, whatever good is, leads to chaos. Because guess what? Your good is not the same as my good. He kind of brings up that same thing and he says it a lot, but it's like in some cultures, you know, uh, you know, they eat people, right? Like, it's like there are things that people think are good. What about people that are uh, going nuts, right? The people that think killing people is okay. People that are sociopathic or psychopathic or any of those types of things. If they have that type of a brain abnormality that they think, should we go with how they define good? No, we shouldn't do that. We should go with what, what the most people say is good. Okay. Now we're going to talk about this big grandiose thing where it's like all these people that are thinking in the same way. Well, that's not necessarily good either. I mean, just think about it. Just remember whenever people didn't think that the, the, or when people did rather think that the earth was the center of everything, there wasn't a heliocentric view, right? Do you remember that? So if we just went with the majority and went with what everybody said, then okay, the earth is the center of the universe. Everything else revolves around it, which isn't true. It's definably untrue. So we can't just go with what most people say. If most people said the earth was flat, they just completely went against all the different evidences that we have out there to the contrary. Do we go with that just because more people say that? Guys, this is where relativism fails, right? We talk about moral relativism all the time. It's not a good way to operate. We have to have a moral law, something that we can come back to. So again, I think Robbie's doing an amazing job in this interview of kind of setting up themes here. So he's got, he's got several themes that he's going through that he's kind of building this argument that's going to crescendo at some point. And to be honest with you, I think it crescendos around this time of this clip, which is around 47 minutes and 15 seconds in. So this is the last question that we're going to cover. It's not the last question that they go over, but it's the last one we're going to look at. And this is where we really get to the crux of why everybody's watching this interview right? People that like Ben Shapiro and like Robbie Zacharias, they're not just like, oh, two of my friends that I want to watch talk to each other. Nope. They want to watch these guys square off about Judaism and Christianity, right? You know, about the New Testament and the Old Testament. Like, how are we going to square these two things and how are these guys going to respond? So around the 47 minute, 15 second mark, we're going to see Ben Shapiro get into it. Okay, so let's talk about an area where we disagree, and that is on the veracity of the New Testament versus the Old Testament. So let's start with some kind of the broader philosophical framework. What do you think that Christianity adds to the world that that Judaism didn't in the first place? First of all, I want you to know uh, how proud I am to have friends like you and Dennis Prager, Michael Medved. I'll be back with Dennis again. I think I remember Dennis's comment when we were talking on this. He was brilliant what he said. He said, when Messiah comes, I will just have one question. Have you been here before? (laughs) (laughs) And I think that is what it'll really boil down to. I don't like to say the word add because it seems like it is something superimposed that wasn't there. I think it was already there, Ben. Of course... Uh, my own upbringing was so different. It was my ancestors were Orthodox Hindu priests generations ago, from the highest caste to the Hindu priesthood. I think it is that one verse, one line, that the moral law hangs upon. I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That redemption motif, I think it moved beyond the metaphor from Egypt, although it was real. It moved beyond the blood sacrifices. And it moved to the very person of the Son of Man that Daniel talked about and the perfection of the law, which was not violated, but affirmed and endorsed. So what I see in the person of Jesus Christ are two very real things, Ben. Number one, it is the fact that he embodied that which was the purest was called for by this very rigorous 613 system of laws that were given. And if you move down even to Habakkuk, 
uh, which is then quoted three times in the New Testament. From 613, David reduced it to a handful. Isaiah reduced it even more. Micah brought it down to three to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. But the Habakkuk phrase of the just shall live by faith, which I understand is more correctly represented as by his faithfulness, you know, that when you move into the person of Christ, two things happen. The law is honored and not debunked, but the relationship question. You know, when you give the four uh, propositions in your closing chapter, you know, starting all the way from purpose and then in relationship, the most moving moment in your book is when you talk to your daughter. Okay, I loved it. I'm a grandfather of five. And uh, my grandson Jude, brilliant guy, he uses words like hypothesis and all of that. He's only about, he's turning eight tomorrow, okay. When my daughter Naomi lost her car keys, she stopped going crazy in the house, slapped her forehead and said, I must be losing my mind. Little Jude, who was five and a half then, stood in front of her and he said, Mommy, whatever you do, please don't ever lose your heart because I'm in there. That personal relationship, as much as I value and love the law, I need to go beyond that relationships. And so here's what I say. The most beautiful moment in the New Testament to me, if I were to choose one moment or two, first I would want to listen to Jesus' talk on Emmaus Road because he connects all the dots going back to the beginning. Brilliant history lesson. Uh, You would love it, I think, as he talked on the Emmaus Road. But the second moment was when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who does he bring with him? Moses and Elijah. Two of the most thundering prophets for whom he was the undertaker. Okay? We don't know exactly what Moses was buried in. Elijah goes up on chariots of fire. But then he goes to the cross. I know I can't pay for myself. The redemptive factor of the purest paying for the impure. Not that there was no penalty, but he paid it and then rises again from the dead. To me, it's a composite that doesn't violate what preceded. I think it completes it. And to me, the attractiveness, and I really appreciate you even giving me the opportunity to share it. Let me give you an illustration of this. I was in Jerusalem some years ago. You may know the name of Moshe Sharon, the well-known scholar on Islamics in Israel. Okay, I was writing a book on an imaginary conversation between Jesus and Muhammad. It'll be released posthumously. So <laughs> I've got it written, okay? So I'll tell you what he said to me. Great man. He's probably more written more on any inscription stone than any other human being around there. He looked at me and he said, Mr. Zacharias, you're a very clever man. He said, well, I'll tell you something you don't know. I said, there's a lot I don't know, sir. He said, no, let me tell you something. He said, you don't know about me. He said, I'm now a professor. He said, but I used to work for the Mossad. He said, Mr. Zacharias, you're a Christian. I'm a Jewish man, but we both have one thing in common. I said, what's that? He said, communion with God. I said, you're right. My goal in life is to have communion with God. He said, so is mine. He said, but I picked up extremists who would go and blow themselves up. And what people don't know, he said, they would have a leaden leaden girdle around that midsection so that they could protect what they felt they were going to use in paradise finally. So that's a different worldview. That's a different worldview. He said, you and I can talk because we have the same goal, communion with God. But if a person thinks of an erotic and essentially driven eternity, I'm not on the same page. With that person, we have completely different goals. So I say, to me in Christ, I see the completion of the story because I hunger not just for propositional truth. When Jesus comes down from the mountain and Peter goes, what does he say? But now we have the word of the prophets made most certain, and you would do well to pay heed to it as a light in a dark place. So I think it is a completion. I mean, what a great, great answer to that question. Again, he could have gone a lot of different directions, but essentially he just preached the gospel. 
And to be honest with you, that's, that's all you really need, right? In that type of situation, just preach the gospel. And so, I mean, he talked about how in, in his view and in the, the Christian worldview that the law is honored in Christ, that the law is fulfilled. Jesus tells us that. And that the personal relationship part is important. Again, the discipleship part. Again, in the Judaic worldview, you don't really get the discipleship thing necessarily with God. It's just basically laws that you're trying to to abide by in order to to honor God, right? That That's more so what you're doing. But the key there that he talked about is communion with God. And he drew a very, very thick line between kind of the Islamic worldview, which is obviously very murderous and very bloody and very sickening whenever you obviously think about what they think is going to happen to them on the other side of, uh, of their jihad. But at the same time, uh, he puts Jude, you know, kind of the, the Jewish worldview and the Christian worldview on the other side, which I think is a great dichotomy for him to draw. So what I want to do for you right now is I want to kind of give you an idea on on my response to this, because obviously I've been able to come in and out here and kind of give you my overall idea as we kind of get into it. But there's kind of three big thoughts that I have on this discussion between Ben Shapiro and Ravi Zacharias. The first big thought that I have is that Ravi really leaned on the Old Testament, not logic, which that's kind of the first thing about the presentations is understand your audience. Right. And in terms of this, obviously, the audience is us and all the millions of people that are going to listen to this interview. But his audience was an audience of one. It was Ben Shapiro right across from him. And so John MacArthur and William Lane Craig, whenever they were on the Sunday special, they leaned a lot more on logic and New Testament references. But I mean, I kind of was just keeping track as we were going through and as I was kind of listening to this about all the different Old Testament references that Ravi Zacharias used. So he talked about Job. He talked about Habakkuk, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Genesis, uh, Psalm 51, David and Bathsheba, Egypt, blood sacrifices, 600 plus rabbinical laws. Daniel, Isaiah, Moses, Micah, Elijah, and, you know, there may have been even more in there. But again, when you're talking to an Orthodox Jew, that's the paradigm that they understand. Everything that I just listed there, they know it. And a lot of them know it by heart. And so it makes a lot of sense why you would kind of make those references. And so I feel like for a guy like Ravi, obviously he was preaching the gospel to a Jew. And how do you get a Jew to kind of come to that realization? Obviously the Holy Spirit's going to do his thing. In addition to that, you're giving them things that they can attach themselves to. I'm reminded whenever we talked about Andy Stanley and Jeff Durbin, when, you know, Andy Stanley was basically talking about, he's like, Hey, look, I don't care what your on-ramp to faith is for, for Jews. Sometimes the on-ramp is the old Testament. And then they figure out that, Oh my gosh, Jesus is the, the guy that was basically being talked about all throughout all of these writings in the old Testament. Like he was the one that was foretold and those types of things. And so I think that that's really important. I think that John MacArthur and William Lane Craig did fantastic jobs, but I really think Robbie really drove the point home. The second kind of big idea that I thought through is of anyone in Christendom, Ravi would be my pick for a Christian to go on the Joe Rogan podcast, on the Joe Rogan experience. And I know we talk about Joe Rogan a lot, but that's one of the things about Joe Rogan's podcast that kind of disappoints me is that he doesn't really have people on from differing differing points of view when it comes to religion, right? And he doesn't really posit any type of religion. I think he would probably call himself an agnostic, right? You know, it's impossible to know, you know, that type of a thing. But at the same time, like he's never had, you know, a Ravi Zacharias or a William Lane Craig or a John MacArthur, any kind of big time pastor get on there and basically talk about the gospel, to talk about the Old Testament, talk about the New Testament, to talk about how we got the scriptures, you know, basically in the palm of our hands as of today. He doesn't have anyone on there to talk about how, you know, the the gospel was, was gathered and how we can go back to the original words that it was written in and, you know, basically give an apologetic for the Christian worldview. I mean, he doesn't do that really for any worldview. He doesn't really check people when they talk about, oh yeah, you know, I meditate a lot or, you know, I do, uh, I do yoga or I'm a Buddhist or, you know, I'm just kind of like, I'm a love person, you know, I just do love or whatever the thing might be. But can you imagine a conversation like this over three hours? Because again, uh, this is Ben Shapiro's version of a long form discussion, but it is, it is just an interview right? It's Ben Shapiro asking the question. He's not really giving his opinion a lot. He's allowing a kind of a wide berth for the person to talk. But on the Joe Rogan podcast, it's two to three hours of them kind of going back and forth and talking. Now, Joe does a good job to make sure that the guest gets, you know, a lot of the microphone time. But at the same time, he's not just sitting there with his list of a dozen questions and he just wants to go through them in order. You know what I mean? And so uh, I think it's, 
not likely that we'll see a guy like Ravi Zacharias be on the Joe Rogan experience. But, you know, if you're prayerful people, I think that'd be something to pray for. And the kind of the last thing here that I think is kind of a big idea is this is an amazing example of how to comport yourself when dealing with an ardent believer of another religion. So this just so happens to be a religion that kind of believes in the first half of our book and not the second half. You know what I mean? But just think about it. If you were going to be talking to a Muslim or a Sikh or a Hindu or, you know, any type of religion that's different from your own, this is kind of a good roadmap for how to traverse a conversation like that. You know what I mean? I mean, these guys weren't at each other's throats. I mean, potentially they were before the interview and after the interview, but you got to pretty much assume that these guys were cordial with each other from the jump. And they still are now and would consider each other friends. And so this is a good example for us that when we're going to enter the fray and have those conversations, it's not about winning, right? It's not about squashing the other person. It's not about owning them, right? You can still address their concerns. You can still address their worldview without destroying them. All right, guys, before we get out of here, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So for your edification today, I've obviously got the YouTube link to the Sunday special uh, episode 60 with Robbie Zacharias, but then I've also included the ones that I've talked about a lot on this episode, which is episode 29 with John MacArthur and episode 50 with William Lane Craig. If you enjoyed this conversation with Robbie Zacharias and Ben Shapiro, I think you're going to get a lot out of the conversation that he had with John MacArthur and William Lane Craig. I really think you'll enjoy it. Guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, give us a five-star review wherever you're listening to this and leave us a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2019 and the beginning of 2020. So if you want me to come speak to your men's event, to your team, to your company, whatever, hit me up, email info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life or Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the Uversion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.